Ecclesiastes chapter 9, and today uh, is the sixth message in this series, and is my last stab and effort at trying to make some coherent sense out of this great Old Testament book, yet a book that is at times a bit dark in tone and a bit frustrating to understand. And I would say to you, if you have already figured out the meaning of life, you should feel free to leave at this point. (laughs) But if not, let me introduce to you Quohelet, the preacher, in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, the philosopher king who lived 3,000 years ago. Now, in our study so far, we've noticed that there's a, a wee bit of a cyclical and repetitive argument that Solomon, Quohelet, is teaching us. And he continues to struggle with the same questions. And the reason, I think, for this is due to the fact that that what Solomon had discovered in his attempt to live uh, as a practical atheist under the sun, that's his phrase, under the sun, that is a life lived apart from God, a life lived only on the horizontal plane, giving no thought to life above the sun in heaven, that life under the sun is a miserable and a weary business. And he sums it all up in his opening argument and first volley in chapter 1 when he says, meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. And when we look together at that, we discovered that really what he's saying is that our life here under the sun is just a, a vapor, empty, futile, vain. And he says no matter how wise we are, no matter how much pleasure we may enjoy, no matter how much we may toil and attain and climb the ladder in life, we will never find that hole in our souls filled up without the life-giving grace of God in Jesus Christ. He says to us that there's no way that Pleasure or work or wisdom or toil will be able to fill up that emptiness that's within you. Only God can fill that up. And the reason for that is because God has designed each of us in a way that only He can fill that emptiness, as Blaise Pascal, the philosopher, so aptly states. In the words of Augustine, for those For Thou hast made us for Thyself, and restless is our heart until it comes to rest in Thee. Augustine was right. That only God in Jesus Christ on this side of the cross, only God can fill that hole in our souls. Now today in chapter 9, Solomon is essentially going to tell us that, that if we knew the day of our death, that he believes it would change the rest of the days of our life. That is to say, that if we knew when our life would be over, then we would more carefully spend every moment that we live. Such that we would, I think, spend our money differently if we knew the day we were going to die. 
We would love our friends more intensely. We would, we would kiss our wives more passionately. We would work and, and labor more vigorously. We would hold our children more tightly. And we would worship our God more fervently if we knew the day we were going to die. Knowing the day you die, I think somehow, changes the way you live. Yet because we are unaware of the day when we will die, we tend to live our life as if death is not coming at all. We think that if we work out at the Nautilus and We'll be able to live long lives. We think that because we take vitamins and eat steroid-free beef, that we'll live long lives. We think that because we have invested in our 401k wisely, we thought this up until a few months ago, that we'd have enough money to take care of ourselves in our old age and we'd be able to live a long life. And as a result of that kind of false security, We live carelessly and we waste our days and we waste opportunities that God gives us for joy and for His glory. And because we don't take this this idea that someday we're going to die seriously, that somehow we're careless with our friends and we're careless with our spouses and we're careless with our kids and we're careless with our jobs and we're careless with our finances because we don't really believe that death is coming for us. We are blind, many of us, to the fragile nature of our life, that our our lives hang but from a spider's web thread. Because for many of us, we act like we're immortal. And because we act like we're immortal, we have a tendency to blow those opportunities and not invest in those relationships that we should have invested in along the way during the days of our lives. And Solomon is writing from first-hand experience because that's the kind of life he lived. Here he is, penning this work toward the end of his life, penning it as a burned-out, totally spent old man that had blown his life on a myth. And that myth, myth was that he, Solomon, was the master of his own destiny. And that is why he cries out, vanity, meaningless, empty. Almost 30 times in this text. And he reflects back on his days of life. And he looks over the panorama of his life. And he realizes how much of his life he has wasted. And seeking pleasure and seeking the things of life under the sun. And all of a sudden the light bulb goes on and he realizes that God created him not to make much of himself, which he did. But instead God had created him to make much of God. And it pains Solomon within to realize in this uh, defining moment how foolish he has been. And his comments here in chapter 9 are the comments that are heard on deathbeds throughout the centuries. If only, if only, if only I had invested my life differently. And so Solomon's challenge to us today in the text that's before us is to take an account, to take an inventory of where we are 
Are we ready to face death? And are we ready to live life for His glory? Several things that he points out. The the first in verse 1 is this, that God knows your tomorrow. God knows your tomorrow. Verse 1, So I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise are and what they do are in God's hands, but no man knows whether love or hate awaits him. He says, all of us, righteous and wise, are, are in God's hands. But how will God act toward us? I think what you have here in verse 1 is a, is a strong affirmation of the sovereignty of God. I think we need a dose of that in our man-centered, human-centered world. There are many things that the preacher, Quohelet, may not understand. But in it all, you realize that he never gave up his belief that God was sovereign, that he was in charge. This he knows, that God is sovereign over all things, that God really does have, as the old spiritual says, the whole world in his hands. And the portrait that Solomon paints here is one of a God who has exhaustive control of the universe. That God is totally and completely ruling everything in this world and in our lives. Whether you are righteous or wise, your deeds and your life, says Solomon, are in the hand of God. Whether rich or poor, healthy or sick, you can trust God. You can rest in His hand because all things are His. And His is a providential hand, a loving hand, a good hand, a wise hand. Now, frankly, that whole idea may may bother some of us because we have this notion that if we keep our nose clean, if we live a righteous life, if we perform good deeds and we're a good person, then God will be obligated to reward us with earthly prosperity. And life will be easy for the righteous. But that's not always the way it is or the way God operates, is it? What the preacher is struggling with here is the same thing that that theologians and average Christians like you and me have struggled with over the centuries. The question is this, why is it? Why is it that sometimes it seems that the wicked are getting what the righteous deserve and the righteous are getting what the wicked deserve? Why aren't comforts and crosses handed out in a a more predictable, fair fashion? Why is it that God seems to let someone who is wicked receive tremendous earthly blessings, while a righteous person who loves God, who loves his wife, who loves his kids, who swings a hammer and worships God in all he does, Why is it that that righteous person seems from our limited earthly views seem to get the short end of the stick? We are perhaps not as vocal about it as we were when we were young children out on the playgrounds of life. But even most of us who are now well-seasoned adults have many times wanted to shout out at the top of our lungs 
that childhood cry, but God, it isn't fair. We worked harder than Harry, but he got the promotion. We studied more than Lori, but she got the top-notch teaching post. We We got better grades than Jeremy, but guess who got all the job offers and my resumes just seem to vanish into thin air. Ours is a backwards, mixed-up world, it seems to us at times. Life is not supposed to be that way. Our neighbor cuts corners on his taxes every year, yet he never hears a peep out of the IRS, whereas we try to scrupulously fill out our tax forms and be honest about all of our expenses and deductions and all the rest. But who gets caught on the math error? The righteous person. Life isn't fair. But think about this for a moment. If God is in control, if He is sovereign over all things, If God's hand is over all things, is over our health, is over our finances, our relationships, our work, our pain, our suffering, our trials, our tribulations. If that is true, then this must mean that God has a purpose in all that He does. If God is sovereign, it might just mean that our greatest tragedy through the gracious providence of God, might turn into life's greatest blessing. It might just mean, if God is sovereign, that our loss of things might actually lead us to a deeper and fuller experience of Christ. It might just mean, if God is sovereign, that the deterioration of our physical health is is sometimes in some situation is allowed, is permitted in God's sovereignty so that we might more clearly and more intently and more diligently follow hard after Him. If this is true, then Paul was absolutely correct when he said to the Romans, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. Let me ask you in that verse, who who is the cause of all things working together for good? Who is it? God. How many things does Paul say will work together for good? All. And who is the promise there in Romans intended for? Those who love God and are called according to His purpose. So then, if we take God at His word, then God has a purpose. We may not see it. We may be blind to it. It might remain a mystery to us. But if we really believe that, then God has a purpose for it all. And His purpose is good. Because as Shar, perfect song for this morning, Shar, as Shar said so aptly in her song, what were the words she sang? God is too wise to be mistaken. He is too good to be unkind. Do you believe that? That God is good? He's too good to be unkind. So when you don't understand, when you don't see His plan, 
When you can't trace His hand, what are we to do? We're to trust His heart. He loves us. So we take God at His word. He has a purpose in calling us and saving us in all the affairs of our life. And though there will be times in our lives here on earth that we don't understand the ways of God and life will seem to us uh, like in the words of the late Winston Churchill, a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. That's the way life is sometimes. A riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. Actually, in the context of Churchill's words, I think, he was talking about the Russians and he likened them to a crocodile. And he said, when the crocodile has its mouth open, you're never sure whether the crocodile is smiling at you or he's about to eat you. A riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. But we can know this. Even though we might not have it all figured out, we can know this, that God holds our tomorrow. But not only does He know and control our tomorrow, Solomon goes on and says, but soon you will die. Oh, there's an encouraging word. Verses 2 through 6, kind of focus on that. He says, all share common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not, as it is with a good man, so with a sinner, as it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. Here's the point of what he's saying. Every one of us here this morning is someday going to die. Now, this may come as a shock to some of you. But I assure you that unless the Lord returns first, that ten out of ten of us in this room are going to die. And I would propose a thought to you this morning. That how you view the inevitability of your death will radically affect how you live the rest of your life. If you knew the day of your death, you would live your life differently. Now, we need to understand that if you don't accept certain presuppositions, if you don't believe there is a God, if you think that there's no need to think about death and that there is no judgment that one day you'll not have to stand before this holy God, you'll live your life that way. But if, however, you believe that there is a God, there is a need to think about death, there is a need to to think about eternity, you will therefore live your life differently than those who don't believe that. Hebrews 9.27 says it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment. I believe that one day every one of us, every one of us will have to stand before God and give an account of the judgment bar of God. And I want to say to you today as clearly and as simply as I can that, that once you die, there is no second chance. Did you hear me? Once you die, there is no second chance. There is no purgatory out of which your surviving relatives will be able to pray you out or spring you out of that. There is no reincarnation which you will come back as a cow or a cat or a dog. There is no re- recurrence in, uh, in life. 
you and I are someday going to die, and after that, the judgment. We're going to be painted up like a circus clown. We're going to be filled up with preservatives. We're going to be shut up in a box and thrown into a six-foot hole. And as I've said so many times, our loved ones will come back to the church and eat fried chicken and red jello. And I hope that in it all, that somebody will shed a tear and say, he was a good chap, wasn't he? But though we may be different in many ways, this is our common destiny. It's painful, but it's true. And when you die, the Bible says that you will either go to everlasting joy in heaven or to everlasting punishment in hell. Those are the only two options. There's no limbo, there's no in-between, there's no purgatory. And though we don't like to talk about hell, Jesus spoke about hell more than anyone else. And you might say, well, Rick, I don't, I don't like to think about it, I don't like to talk about it because it sounds terrible. You're right, it is terrible, so don't go there. There's another way. Turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus. And hell will no longer be a concern for you. Look, God is is kind and direct here with us. The continual prognosis of mankind is this. That humankind is destined to die because sin exists. And the wages of sin, as Scripture says, the wages of sin is what? Death. But the gift of God is eternal life. We will all die. Now, you and I can work out and we can be faithful to doing our cardio exercises. We can take our vitamins. We can drink our fancy sports water. We can stay away from McDonald's and we can swear off of Krispy Kreme, none of which I intend on doing. Sorry, Dr. McAllister, but no. (laughs) One day, our bodies are going to give out. This old tent is going to be nothing but shreds. My heart will stop. I'll take my last breath, and I will die. That's our common destiny. And Solomon's point here in the early verses of chapter 9 is this. Try all you like. Take every measure that you can to avoid it. But death looms large before every one of us, and we will all die. Therefore, watch how you live. And he goes into that in verse 3 and following. He says, this is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of men, moreover, are full of evil, and there's madness in their hearts while they live. And afterward, they join the dead. The reason we hate death so much, have you ever thought about this? The reason we hate death so much is because we weren't built for it in the first place. Ever think about that? We were built for life. God's Word is not death. God's Word is life. Death came as an intruder. Death came as an enemy. Death came as a result of the original fall of Adam and Eden in the garden. And death is the wages of our rebellion and our sin against this holy God. It is a punishment for turning our backs on Him for something else. You and I were originally created 
by a living God to be a living people who would live forever with this living God. But because of sin, death has entered the picture, and the only way to get rid of death is to get rid of sin. And the only way to get rid of sin, the Gospel says, is to trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. There's no other way. You can't work your way into it. You can't be a good moral person and and think your way into it. You need to trust in Christ, the sinless, the perfect Lamb of God, who paid the penalty for our sin, became our substitute, and made atonement for our sin. Why? So we could live. No longer would we need to taste death, but now we would live. And for us to give some silly platitude or bumper sticker philosophy about death that says, well, death, yes, yes, we're all going to die. It's a part of life. That's kind of silly claptrap, I think, totally obscures the horrific nature of death. Death was never intended by God. He intended life. And as Christians, there, are, there is no need for our hearts to be full of evil and insanity, as Solomon says here, because Jesus has defeated death and He can reign in our life. And for those of you who don't want to listen to God and accept this truth, you may be insane enough and banal enough to assume that your evil will go unnoticed by this holy God. You might think that what you've stolen or the person you've hurt or how you lied is not going to be seen and you won't be caught. I'm here to tell you and assure you that you're already caught. And God knows all about it. You may have everybody else fooled, but God knows. And God doesn't play games with sin. He's going to someday deal with it fully. And if you refuse to accept the only remedy there is for sin, which is faith in Jesus Christ, then your insanity and your evil will be paid out as a wage, and the wage for that insanity and evil is death forevermore. But for the living, there's hope. In verse 4, he gives a little proverb. He says, it's better for the mangy dog that lives off of garbage heaps, since he's alive, than it is for the regal lion who is dead. The tricky little story. It says, even in our condition of alienation from God, even in the midst of our insane and evil behavior, if we hear the good news of the gospel and we place our trust in Christ, we lay aside every attempt of being king of our own kingdom and follow this one true king, we will have hope. And friends, I'm here to tell you that we do have hope because Scripture says that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Have you called upon the name of the Lord? Have you trusted in His mercy and His grace? I'm here to give you the good news that God the Father sent Jesus Christ the Son to meet the meaninglessness and the nature of life, to meet it head on. Jesus entered into our world. He dove into the abyss of our sin. He died what was by all appearances a meaningless, senseless death. Jesus, God in the flesh, allowed Himself to be treated like a common criminal, like a fool. 
He was dressed up in a moth-eaten purple curtain and paraded through the streets of Jerusalem like the village idiot. He met the unfairness, the backwardness, the inexplicable randomness of raw meaninglessness. He met it head on. Why? So that you and I could live. (laughs) Where are you, kid? Beautiful. Beautiful. Raise them up young. You're doing a good job with that little boy, Steve. Jesus Christ tasted and drank the bitter cup. He tasted death so that you and I could enjoy life. And yes, for now, death is, is it still a tragedy. But it is not the final or ultimate tragedy. Because Jesus Christ and what He did on the cross took the sting out of death. Where, O oh, death is your sting? Where, O oh, grave is your victory? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory. In ourselves? No. In this meaningless world under the sun? No. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory in whom? In Jesus Christ. Because of Christ, you and I can live. Now, there's so much more he has to say here, and I don't have uh, time to go through it all. I wish I did. He talks about some practical aspects of this. Because we have life, we should live life. Live it to the full. Hurry up and enjoy life is what he has to say in verses 7 through 10. And he he says, go eat your bread in happiness and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. Solomon keeps coming back to this theme of eating with joy. He's not talking about gluttony. He's not talking about getting drunk. He's saying that since you are alive, and remember, this is before the cross, but now we know the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey says, after the cross, on this side of the cross, because we are alive in Christ, because our address is in Christ, we can enjoy life with happiness and a cheerful heart. And he says, let your clothes be white all the time. What an interesting instruction. It goes against the the common policy that, that was about when I was a kid, that you should, after Labor Day, no one should ever wear white until spring came. Remember that? Don't wear white shoes. Don't wear white belts. We did have white belts and white pants back in those days. But he says in verse 8, let your clothes be white all the time and let there be no lacking of oil on your head. What an interesting instruction. What, What does Solomon mean here? Well, white clothes are a symbol of purity. White clothes are a symbol of celebration. What he's saying is to... Because you are alive in Christ, have an attitude of celebration all the time. Take off the black morning clothes because you are alive in Christ. Not some of the time, but all the time. Trouble is with most Christians, we look like we're mourning something all the time. And we go around draped in our black crepe. We talk about our failures and our past sin and our our past and... 
We should be people, we should be the most joyful and celebratory people on the face of God's earth. Because we have something to celebrate. We have hope. We have life. We're forgiven. We've got God's good gift of grace. Jesus has secured our victory. We're free from death. We're free from Satan. We're free from self. And we're free from our slavery to Satan. We should show God off to this world. And we should wear white all the time. So, Solomon says, put some brill cream in your hair. Don't go around looking like you're in the molly grubs. Put some moose in and spike it up. Look like you're alive. Live life. Because you have Christ and you of all people should be enjoying life. Eat your bread. Boy, that'll do a trip on you if you're on a no-carb diet, won't it? Go up to Panera and order five loaves. He says, and enjoy the life with the woman you love all the days of your fleeting life. Enjoy the wife of your youth. I wonder what our relationships would look like if we really took the day of our death seriously. If you really took the day of your death seriously, would you not love your spouse more? Wouldn't you say, I love you more? Wouldn't you hold your kids more tightly? What if instead of the romance ending when the honeymoon is over, you start listening to your spouse carefully and you start kissing more deeply and you start loving more intensely? Someone says, here's a practical, practical outflow of this enjoying life. Hold on to her. Proverbs 18.22, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Hold on to her because someday you won't have her. Let there be no regrets. Let there be no regrets. I remember so clearly the day that I attended my grandmother's funeral. My grandfather who survived her They had lived together for 60 plus years in married life. They had been faithful to each other all those years. Never, never breached those marital promises that they had made. My godly grandmother was eulogized beautifully by her pastor. We wept bitter tears knowing that grandma would no longer be a a part of our lives on this side of eternity. And when the service was over, my mother helped my grandfather up out of his chair and helped him up to the side of the casket. And he stood over the casket. And we all heard what he said. No regrets. No regrets. Wouldn't it be wonderful to come to the end of your life and be able to say, no regrets. Live your life. Live it vigorously. Live it passionately. Live it courageously. Live in the now. Don't wait to live your life 
tomorrow because tomorrow may never come. Don't don't wait for some other moment. Live it now. Live your life because you are alive, not only in this life, but in the life to come. Hold tight to the sounds of the music of living. Happy sounds from the laughter of children at play. Hold them here while they're here. And don't wait for tomorrow to look back and wish for today. Yesterday's gone. And tomorrow may never come. But we have this moment today. Someday you will die. For those of you who are in Christ, you need not fear death. For what awaits you there is glorious, more than you can ever imagine. John even had trouble describing it as he saw the revelation of Christ in the final book of the Bible. But for those of you who don't know Christ, who have not embraced faith, who have not repented of your sin, you have something to fear. Because the Bible says that for you who are not in Christ but are outside of Christ, your future is one of eternal conscious torment. You see, when it comes to death, it really is about who you know. Do you know Jesus? Or not? And what you think about death will deeply affect the way you live life. So live life to the full. Until the Lord takes you home. And we will be with the Lord, says Paul, forever. Would you bow your heads and let's pray. Friend, I would say to you today, just before I pray, that until you are ready to die, you are nowhere ready to live. Do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Have you repented of your sin and trusted in Christ alone? If you are in Christ, you have a wonderful hope. You don't have to live under guilt any longer. You don't have to worry anymore about whether or not you're part of the family of God. If you are in Christ, you're forgiven. You're a recipient of His grace. And if that's your lot today, then throw yourself fully into life. Don't hold back. But if you don't know for sure that you're ready to die, I would urge you to turn your heart toward Christ and ask Him to open your eyes, your ears, and your heart and that you would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And all that guilt and shame and the weight of your sin and the meaninglessness of this life can, by the grace of God, can be turned into purpose and meaning and peace and the fullness of God. So God, our Father, would you come write your word upon our hearts? Today we acknowledge 
once again, Lord, that apart from You, we have no hope, no joy, no happiness, no blessedness. But, Lord, we know with You there is lasting joy and life forevermore. Show us, Lord, our emptiness. But also remind us that the one who is empty can run to you and find that emptiness filled so that we might be able to say, as with the psalmist, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Help us to be ready to die and teach us, Lord, how to live. This we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.